sister. Well, let's keep our Bibles open there, shall we? And as we break into John 6 today, you and I know one thing for sure, that John didn't record this miracle so, so that someone like, like me could stand up at something like this and begin to share some unique personal instincts and insights into what I think might be going on in this passage. John had a much clearer vision, enabled as he was by the Holy Spirit, in capturing and writing this for us. And I think I always find that what I need uh, is what every good golfer needs. We need the line, don't we? I guess there'll be some very good golfers in this room. I'm not one of them, but we, we need the line at any time we're, we're, we're aiming for the pin. And we need to see what the line is. Where is John heading? What is he aiming at? As under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this. Otherwise, we won't really see what's going on. And we won't see what's tremendously and compellingly relevant, not only for these guys back then, but for us as we gather today. I think there are two key verses in John 6 in general that we have to be aware of and keep in mind as we look at this section. The very famous verse 35, where the Lord Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then later verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I see 35 and 40 kind of cherry-picking from the vast riches of John 6, but I think they are really the mountaintops as I've looked at this chapter because it seems to me that eternal life is the issue that is in the mind of the Lord Jesus at this point in John's Gospel. And when we talk about eternal life, of course, you and I know, don't we, and we rejoice in this, the wonder of eternal life is not just that it won't end. That's wonderful, but there's more to it than that. It is to be an experience of eternal, complete satisfaction. So it's eternal in every dimension, not just duration. It's eternal in vast excitement and wonder and joy and ever-increasing exploration and marvel at the greatness of God's kindness to us in Christ. Now, as evangelistic workers, we have eternity on our minds all the time. We go to the funeral of our neighbours. And we, I think of a funeral of a neighbour I took this year. uh, Sorry, tail end of last year. And... I was so thankful for the opportunity because all the other neighbours came. And it's a thing you pray for, isn't it? An opportunity. How are we going to share the gospel with all the neighbours? And you have contacts here and there with one or two. But to get them all in the crematorium was amazing. I was so thankful to the Lord for that. We've had some conversations since. But eternity was so clearly in my mind. Because the dear man who died, I I don't know where he is. I prayed with him and I spoke with him. And I, I don't know... What passed between him and the Lord? I don't have any certainty whether or not he trusted Christ. So eternity is always on our minds as evangelistic workers. And we know that eternal life is available to everyone who looks to Jesus or looks on Jesus, the Son, and believes in him. But I want to encourage us today just to soak this up for the sake of our own souls. Just to think about what the Lord Jesus is saying here. Not just in terms of our ministries, vitally important though that work is, but just to think about it for our own souls, to think about our eternal life that has come to us 
in Christ. To think about what it means to look on the Son. To be refreshed in Him. These 15 verses that our sister read for us are are designed to help us to do that. To come to Him, our Saviour. To look on Him. Afresh for us, the evangelistic workers, to believe on Him in our hearts. To know with joy that one day, if the Lord Jesus doesn't come first, we are going to be bodily raised and we're going to be with him in glory forever. It's a stunning and glorious truth and so thrilling. One of the colossal messages of John's gospel from chapter 17, verse 3, where the Lord Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have Sent. And that's our reason for gathering in these days, isn't it? That's why we've made the time to get on the trains and pack the car and make our way here and bring our towels, if you remember to bring your towel on like me. Um, that's why we've done it, weary and worn though we may be at the start of a new year. Just as Tim said, with the newness very quickly wearing off, brand new year, same old me, and all the issues, as we come weary and worn, We want to be refreshed in the knowledge of our loving Father and refreshed in in knowing the Lord Jesus, the one sent by the Father. Because in him eternal life has already begun for us. And we come to him hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting. And Jesus says to the fellowship of evangelistic workers, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want us to take, if we can, two sweeps of this passage this afternoon. First of all, we're going to look at what we could hardly miss. And then secondly, we're going to look at what we could easily miss, or certainly what I easily missed until coming to look at it afresh. But let's begin with this initial sweep of the text, what we could hardly miss. Well, this is... One of the best known passages in the Bible, the account of the miraculous feeding of many thousands, recorded in all four Gospels. I don't know about you, but I'm always amazed on the uh, big money TV quiz shows by the remarkable range of general knowledge of the contestants. And often, it's their lack of knowledge of the Bible that lets them down. They, they get to the 125,000 pound question and what was Adam's wife's name Uh, Abimelech no sorry away you go cheerio Uh, it's the strangest thing but even in the the secular world this story is known most contestants on a TV show would probably know something about this little story some of us have known it if we were brought up in a Christian environment some of us have known this since our Sunday school days since our earliest pictorial representations of the gospel story. So we're familiar with this territory. And and we love it. And I think there's several reasons why we love it. Number one, we love it because of the massive interest in the Lord Jesus. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Massive interest in the Lord Jesus. They were in the northeast 
coast of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida. And the mountain that they went up, uh, we would recognize probably today as the Golan Heights. And when Mark fills out the details in his gospel, in Mark chapter 6, uh, he says in verse 31, you don't have to turn to it, I'm just going to read it now. Uh, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, come away and buy yourselves to a desolate place and rest a, fi- a while. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns that got there ahead of them. So it was to the most desolate, miserable place that Jesus wanted to take them. So that they could just have a day off. Just have some rest and refreshment away from the pressing demands of ministry. But there was such massive interest in the Lord Jesus that to that place of desolation, this vast crowd came. Not necessarily because they loved the Lord Jesus. Not even necessarily because they wanted to be with him for his sake. But because of what he could do for them. So this was a hectic and demanding, exhausting time for the Savior and for his team. And I think we love the story for that reason. And I think we also love it because it's, it has this obvious mission impossible feel to it. Mark explains that the crowd had been listening to Jesus teach all day. And by this time it was now late in the afternoon. And he records how the disciples saw the absolute impossibility of the task. Of catering for such a vast crowd. And in Mark's gospel, the detail is given that they urged Jesus to send them away. They didn't want lumbered by them. They didn't want to have to deal with this hassle. Well, we know that feeling, don't we? We know the, the utter exhaustion after maybe a very hectic weekend or a mission or uh, a day or two in the doors. And we're just drained. And the phone goes and you know the number and you know the name. And your heart sinks. And you... We know that level of exhaustion. We well understand it. And we appreciate it for the disciples. But the Lord Jesus wouldn't let them off the hook. Back to John 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then. And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip. Where are we to buy bread? So that these people may eat. Philip was the disciple who knew that area best. He was from Bethsaida, according to Luke. So this was his home district. He knew where the local spar was. He knew where the cash line machine was. He knew all about the the community. Verse 6, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And again, you'll know this stuff. You'll be very familiar with it, that a denarius was... Roughly the rate for a day of pay for a labourer. So 200 days is between seven and eight months wages. Nobody carried that kind of cash on them. And even if they did, of course there's no spar. There's nowhere they can go. There's no outlet that would enable them to purchase enough bread at that time. Even if they could find a town with a baker, how are they going to reproduce that amount of food in so short a time to feed that vast crowd and give them literally a bite each. 
I can well understand the disciples coming to Jesus, urging him just to move the crowd on, make the problem go away. But at some point then, Andrew must have been prompted to slip away and see if there was, by any chance, some available food among the hordes. And it was a good initiative, but he comes back certain that his efforts have not saved the day. And have only confirmed the extremity of the challenge. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And the impression I get is that Andrew wasn't saying, Do you think? He was saying, Look, I've had a look. This is how dismal it is. It's laughable. Coming down the train today, I was trying to think of times when I've seen that kind of effort being made, offers being made, and it just being so ridiculous. I remember when I was a student in in Belfast in Northern Ireland, did my assistantship with a little church in the countryside up in County Antrim, and the uh, elder in in that church, or one of the elders, told me that his neighbour's barn had caught fire. And it was, it was a roaring fire. And this dear man, not from a, a, a farming background himself, had gone and got his garden hose out and dragged it across to where his neighbour was and stood at a safe distance with his garden hose going against this inferno in the background. It nearly melted the hose. It was just utterly pointless, almost laughable. In fact, some rather unkind Suggestions were made to him by the man whose whose shed it was. Just laughable. Overwhelmed by the blaze. The garden hose is not going to do it. Overwhelmed by the size of the crowd. A few loaves and fish are not going to do it. Hopeless. Feeding them was financially unviable and materially impractical. It was mission impossible. And even when we've heard this story A thousand times. We smile inwardly, don't we? At how the odds are stacked massively against the disciples of Jesus as the sun sets and the crowd thickens and the tummies rumble because we know that he has capabilities that make the mission possible. And that's another thing we love about this story, the miraculous intervention. Jesus said, And I like the way you read it, sister. Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And we probably all know that only the men are counted. And there are 5,000 of them, then the women and the children. And so we're looking at multiples of 5,000 of hungry, tired people in a desolate place in the Golan Heights, a long way from home. And from dinner. But it's not a problem to the Lord Jesus. Verse 11. He then took the loaves. And when he given thanks. He distributed them. To those who were seated. So also the fish. As much as they wanted. It is a staggering provision. Isn't it? And it's typical of the Lord Jesus. Not to make a Hollywood blockbuster style fuss of the whole thing. A lot of arm waving and no, there's none of that going on with the king of everything. He just takes the packed lunch, five 
kind of Marks and Spencer scone-sized bread rolls and two dried fish. And he thanks his heavenly father for the provision. And everyone feasts until they are full. It is a miraculous provision. And verse 12 tells us that when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. If you ever need to increase your blood pressure, probably most of us need to do the opposite, but if you ever feel your blood pressure is a bit on the low side, a good way to increase your blood pressure is to listen to Thought for the Day on the radio, I find. (laughs) It does it for me every time. And when the Christian spokesperson gets his turn or her turn, and when in that turn they refer to the Bible, which is by no means always, Because they're very clever and very cool and very sophisticated, they set out to try to explain how a miracle like this is much easier to believe by explaining it away. And you've probably heard it, and I've definitely heard it, the nonsense about how what happened that day was that the hearts of the whole crowd were melted when they saw the little boy's lunch being given into the hands of Andrew and shared, and they instantly all began, convicted as they were, to unpack the picnics that they'd brought and until then had concealed, and they began to share with one another. Honestly, there are people who've got PhDs who think that's what happened on the Golan Heights. They're serious. They think that is a more attractive picture of the Lord Jesus. But it couldn't be clearer that there is no room in this text to conclude anything other than that the entire provision came from five rolls and two fish. And not only did teeming thousands eat to their fill, but there was vastly more left over at the end than there was when they set out. And even if the people who were there that day, those vast crowds, even if they knew differently that they'd all had their picnics with them and were provoked to share by the example of the little boy it doesn't make any sense why if that were the case would they have followed Jesus for another 24 hours in John 6 and ask him to give them that bread always in verse 34 (laughs) there's no way they meant give us what we brought and were shamed into sharing Now, of course, when you're in the schools, when you're in the sixth form, when you're in the universities, when you're on the doors, people have issues with this kind of thing. And they're they're saying to us, but that's impossible. And part of our answer is, yes, it is impossible. It is absolutely humanly impossible. The whole text tells us of the human impossibility of it. But we shouldn't make the fact that we can't reproduce what Jesus did a reason to disbelieve him. These miraculous signs of the Lord Jesus were historically verifiable. They weren't done in private. None of them was done in private. And then reported by him later. The way so many fakes do it nowadays. They write their book and tell people what happened that nobody could see. They were always done in public. 
There was always at least some people there. And in this case, thousands of them who saw it and who were amazed. And in Mark's Gospel, we, we discover that even those who were the outright enemies of the Lord Jesus, when they saw the kind of signs that he did, much as they wanted to, they couldn't deny his power. They could only question the source of his power. They said it's by the power of Satan that he drives out Satan. Idiotic thing to say. But those with a vested interest in proving Jesus to be a charlatan in the first century were entirely unable to do so. His miracles were uncontested at the time. It's really important to be able to say that to our friends. And this wasn't a circus performance. What the Lord Jesus did, these were signs. Miracles done to point people that he loved in a direction. And not least, miracles to train his disciples who were in desperate need of a break from the demands of gospel ministry. Something to freshly make them not only aware of their own inabilities, but of his deep resource. So let's take a second sweep at this. And notice now what we could easily miss. And this is really what I missed until I came to think about it just a couple of months ago. And that's why I'm sharing it with you today. It's very, very easy, isn't it, to be so enthralled by the scene of this sign in John's Gospel that we don't actually see what the sign is, is pointing to. So let me see what you think about this and draw, draw out three things that I had never noticed before but became... I think helpful to me. Number one, the significance of the timing. Verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, verse five, then, and seeing the large crowd, etc., etc., etc. But put these two things together. The Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing the large crowd. John is definitely drawing our attention to the significance of the timing. Passover's near. It means that it's a year since Jesus cleared the temple in chapter 2. It was Passover time that had rolled round again. Why might John draw our attention to that? Well, the Passover celebrated, obviously, God's rescue, of his deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt and central to that commemoration for every Jewish family was the slaughtering and the cooking and the eating of a lamb as they recalled the miraculous deliverance of God for them. And we already know from John 1.29 and 36 that Jesus has spoken of himself as the lamb of God. And as chapter 6 unfolds, we hear Jesus speak of the need for him to die as the Lamb to take away the sin of the world. As chapter 6 goes on, we hear explain the means by which he will provide not just localized rescue in Egypt, but eternal res- rescue into freedom from slavery forever for those who come to put their trust in him. We see in chapter 6, don't we, that this is possible because he offers to give those who come to him not just bread, as he has done on this occasion, but the living bread, his flesh. So, for example, glance ahead to verse 51, 
where he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So I think we're meant to see the miraculous provision of physical bread in the first 15 verses, pointing obviously to the infinitely greater provision of Jesus himself as the living bread, the flesh bread, the lamb bread. I think that's the significance of the timing of the miraculous feeding so close to the Passover. And then secondly, to notice the significance of the test. In verse 5, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I nearly worked my way through two pencils chewing this over and thinking about what was going on here. Trying to work out why the Lord Jesus asked Philip about the purchase of bread. Where are we to buy bread? Bread. When he knew that there would be no purchase. Verse 6 tells us he already knew what he was going to do. Of course he did. No one was going to be trying to arrange delivery of dinner for 10 to 20,000 people. No deliveroo. No did somebody say just eat on the Golan Heights that day. Of course not. The Lord Jesus had no expectation of there being any financial transaction. So I just found myself wondering, why did he say, where are we to buy bread? And it struck me that Jesus may have raised the subject of cost to draw attention to the fact that although that vast dinner cost no one a single penny, it would not be without cost to him. The effect of Jesus raising the question of purchase confirmed that he already knew what he was going to do. He was going to do the impossible. None of them would pay the cost. They were completely out of their depths to meet that cost. We've talked about that. In our first year of marriage, we we got married in June and moved to the first church that we served in in Bells Hill and were inducted in September. And two weeks later, a mission began. It's a great way to begin our uh, pastoral life together, my wife and I. And it was uh, one of these uh, American partnership missions. And because I just arrived, I had nothing to do with the organization of it. It was already happening. And these dear folks had got on a plane in the States and had arrived with us And uh, there were places for everybody apart from two older gentlemen. And we said, well, we'll be delighted to have them. And we just had an amazing two weeks with these two two brothers. They were so kind and such good fun. Hugh and Grady. They'd come to be part of this team from the States. And we didn't know at the time, but they were both very wealthy and very generous. And a year later, they sent tickets for my wife and I to go to the States. And everybody else who didn't have them in their house was... Sick as a parrot by then and wish they had. But anyway, we, we had this huge treat. Um, having had our honeymoon in Bournemouth, we then had a huge treat a year later 
I was a big spender in these days uh, of going across to America for a month to spend two weeks with Hugh and then two weeks with Grady. And it was just such a wonderful time. They were so kind to us. And they, they, they drove us around and they hosted us and they often bought us meals when we were out. And I decided one evening that the least I could do was pay for dinner. Thankfully, I hadn't announced my intentions in advance. Because when I saw the menu and I saw the prices and I saw the number of people he'd invited to be at dinner with us, I realized that, I, that, that it would more than clean out my entire holiday budget and a chunk of next month's salary. So I just sat quiet. And I decided to buy him a coffee the next day when my host graciously paid, as he intended to do for the whole thing. I wanted to pay, but I was completely outgunned. And my host was abundantly able to settle it, not think twice about it. But there was a cost. It wasn't free. And he was glad to pay it. And all I had to do was accept his invitation and sit at the table. And I think that's the point of the test for the disciples. Where will we get what we need and how will we pay? What will it cost us? And the answer to the question is really given in verse 27. Glance down to verse 27. Inevitably, I'm having to be selective now, but just have a look at this verse 27, where the Lord Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Which the Son of Man will give to you. At verse 28, now comes the obvious question. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, how do we pay? What contribution do we make for this to happen? The Lord Jesus answers in verse 28. Sorry, verse, yes, verse 28. He answers there beautifully. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, if you've drifted off, you are not to be blamed. I'm starting to drift off myself now, but please come back. Just so we see the link of what's going on here. You see, there is a cost for the food that endures to eternal life. That's not free completely. Free to us, but there is work that has to be done. But Jesus gives it because he has paid it all And he has done it all. It cost him sorely. But now for us, the way to labor for the food that endures to eternal life is not to labor for it, if you see the point. The way to labor for the food that endures to eternal life is not by the sweat of your brow, but is to believe in him, the one sent by the Father, and from his boundless resource, he will give to those who trust him the cleansing and the freedom and the rescue and the reconciliation that we need to have eternal life and complete satisfaction satisfaction, and every longing satisfied in him forever. He will give us that. Now that's very obvious. That's the gospel you preach every time you preach. 
But this is such an important truth for gospel workers to grasp afresh. I, I haven't come across this often, but I remember being stunned in a conversation one day with a gospel worker, a very sound brother, a clear and capable herald of the gospel. But in casual conversation, he said to me that when he looks back over many years that he served the Lord, he feels thankful that on the day when he stands before the Lord, he will have something to show for it. Now, on one level, as you hear me saying that, you're saying, well, what's the big deal with that? And there is a sense in which it's wonderful to be able to use our redeemed lives and our redeemed power for the glory of God. But this, as we went further in the conversation, that's not what he meant. He meant he wanted the reassurance when he stood before the Lord and been able to say, there's what I did for you, Lord. There's how I labored for the food that lasts for eternal life. And it made me wonder, that must have been 10 or 15 years ago, and it made me wonder if there is not a subtle temptation for us who preach free grace, that there might be at a deep and unexamined level in our lives a kind of laboring for something to show on that day. And the Lord Jesus says we ought not to do that because trying to do that will kill us. And in the meantime, it will kill our joy in the gospel and make our ministry ineffective. Yes, our banner text, 1 Timothy 4.10, for this reason we labor and strive. But our laboring and striving there is not for eternal life is not to have something to show Jesus on the day that we stand before him at the end of our lives when the books are opened. By our laboring and striving now, we know this, don't we? We're not paying back Jesus for all he's done for us. We're not thinking of his grace to us and restoring works to him in their place. No, he's done it all. We labor and strive to go on trusting entirely in what he's accomplished for us. That's what the laboring and striving is. It's remarkable that it takes that much effort to go on trusting completely and entirely in what he has done. And not slipping back into trusting in what he has done and also what I'm doing for him. So 1 Timothy 4.10, that's where Paul takes us to. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And that, I think, is the significance of the test. How will we pay? Answer, Jesus has paid. Lastly, the significance of the throne Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he'd done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They'd seen enough to convince them that Bible prophecy was being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Doesn't sound like they'd all got their picnics out and shared them, Radio 4 style. 
They were thinking back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So these people are thrilled. They are thrilled. This is the leader they've been waiting for. No wonder they wanted him as their national shepherd. Their miraculous king. To stand up against the forces of the Roman Empire in occupation. And it may look like the perfect response in verse 14. And if it ended there, we might conclude with the evangelist's greatest joy by asking people to make Jesus their king. And saying, isn't it great? That's what they did. and That's what we should do. Oh, it would be so good if it finished like that, but it doesn't. And we should remember from John chapter 2, a similar situation that looked very promising but wasn't. Remember chapter 2 verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Oh, that does, does that not thrill the heart of the evangelists? But, verse 24, Jesus in his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in a man. Very promising situation in John 2. Jesus very wary. Very promising situation in John 6. Everybody wants to make him king. Jesus is very wary. Verse 15 of our chapter. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. To make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. By himself. It would be so easy to miss this. Or to see this verse as a rather bizarre twist. A strange thing that Jesus did that kind of spoiled the whole day. But the fact is that Jesus knows how men and women think across the nations of the world. Down through the years of history. Irrespective of what generation people live in. How sophisticated or unsophisticated it is. Nothing changes. Our saviour knows these hearts and minds. And to our surprise. The Lord Jesus will not play along with our agenda for him. The Jews were desperate to be liberated from Roman occupation. And here is a leader who could sort the Romans out. And send them packing in short order. But Jesus withdrew. He wasn't going to answer those temporary heart longings. And be the kind of king they wanted him to be. I remember when I was 30. My wife was getting dinner ready for the rest of the family to join us. And said to me, take the girls to the park. And I can't remember what we'd done or hadn't done. But our oldest girl, who would have been seven then, I must have displeased her in some way. And she said to me, now dad, that's not how a good 30-year-old behaves. I can't remember what it was I'd refused to do for her. Dad, that's not how a good 30-year-old behaves. And it's, it's a wee family joke to this very day. And the issue here is that Jesus was not how a good king behaves. As far as these people were concerned. And we find it so difficult still, don't we? I look at you this afternoon, brothers and sisters. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. And I wouldn't presume to know 
the issues of anyone's life, and I don't have anything in my mind, but I know the issues of my own life and my wider family and connection, and I'm looking out on a sea of need. I'm looking out on people just now who know a saviour who so clearly has the power to do what you're asking him to do, and you know that he loves you, but he isn't being quite as cooperative as we would have him be in some areas of our lives. He's not quite answering in the way that we would like him to ask. He's not being the kind of king we want him to be, to get me that job or that post or that partner or that healing miracle for myself or for a loved one or that get that debt off my back or getting that peace of mind that I'm desperate for tormented by discouragement and depression or whatever it may be and isn't it so dangerous to want Jesus for what we want him to do for us rather than for what he wants to do for us that's what's going on here And we, like the people of John 6, are often a bit disappointed when he doesn't deploy his considerable kingly power in the ways in which we would want him to deploy it. And he graciously answers positively countless prayers for his people. He graciously answers the most wonderful things. And and we're going to be hearing about that in the mission reports. And I so look forward to hearing it, rejoicing with you. But he won't give us heaven yet. Not in this world. He won't reveal his utter reliable kingship to you by removing every cloud from your skies. And still today, outside of here, people want him to be a token for political revolution and sit on that throne or they see him as gathering the leftovers in 12 baskets, and they want to make him an environmental warrior and have him sit on that throne, or the old chestnut that he's a great humanitarian feeding the poor and set him on that throne. But the original Jesus, the real Jesus, withdraws from all of these throne rooms that we create for him. He won't sit on the thrones that we make for him. He sits on the throne that his father has made for him. Having done the work that his father sent him to do of infinitely greater worth and significance than all our ideas of how he ought to exercise his kingly power. And as I say that to you, I'm only preaching it to myself. And he goes in chapter 6 to explain in great detail why he has come and how he will reign. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who comes, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. And they didn't like it. And by verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back And no longer walked with him. It's agony, isn't it? In the gospel work, it's agony when that happens. Sometimes it's after a few days. Sometimes it's after 20 years. Someone stops and 
no longer follows Jesus. Jesus said to the twelve in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? And we know this territory, we're so familiar with this, aren't we? So many have become disgruntled with Jesus not being the kind of king and God they wanted him to be. But we line up with Simon Peter as we close this session now and we answer him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And that's the work. That's the most important work we will ever do. The work of doing that thinking. The work of believing and coming to know that he is the one from the Father. Let's pray together. And as we pray, just to quote that beautiful town end hymn for us today. That because of this Saviour, because of this King. There is a hope that stands the test of time. That lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave. To see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When sufferings cease. And sorrows die. And every longing satisfied. Brother and sister, you will never thirst. You will have eternal life. You will be raised up on the last day. And joy unspeakable will flood your soul. For we will be truly home. Gracious Father, will you help us please. To marvel at our Saviour. And in these quieter days as we draw aside. To a desolate place. by our conversation, by our prayer times alone and with one another, by our encouragement of each other, by our singing of your praise, by hearing the reports, by being trained and stimulated, by hearing your word, would you help us to believe and to do this work for the bread that lasts to eternal life. In your precious name we pray.